When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, hope you're well. This is episode 83 of Back of the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast. My name's Sam Davis, and you're probably wondering, what's different between now and the last podcast? Well, in fact, I can tell you. Let's cross to the Vitality for more information. Yeah, so uh, not an awful lot going on, on the pitch at least, but... There's lots of conjecture off it. I hope you're all staying safe and enjoying, if you can, the lockdown. Certainly not the best at the moment, is it? And for me, I work at home anyway, so you'd think it wouldn't affect me. But it's just the fact that the opportunity to actually go out has been taken away. And whilst I can do a run every now and then, I absolutely hate running. I really need to start enjoying it more. Rather kick a ball around in the park, can't do it apparently. But whether you follow us on YouTube, Facebook or Twitter, you might know that we have been quite busy providing a load of AFC Bournemouth content whilst this whole lockdown is going on. Not least, we ran the World Cup of AFC Bournemouth Premier League goals. Of course, you probably know the result by now, but We started off with 32 of our finest strikes since 2015 and lo and behold it got whittled down to the last two in the final which were, you guessed it, Matt Ritchie's strike against Sunderland, amazing chest and volley against Charlie Daniels's thunderbolt against Manchester City with his left foot and the winner with 54% was Charlie Daniels with that amazing strike we ended up losing the game but wow what a goal it was a lot of people thought Richie should have got it maybe if he was at the club would it be slightly different either way cracking strike and actually at the time myself and Alex Deutsch had the pleasure of presenting him with his Carling goal of the month trophy and Charlie Daniels Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Talk us through the goal then, when it, when it fell to you. Yeah, uh, I remember yeah, Dan Gosden crossed it in and it, it got headed out and I thought it was, it was sitting up nice, so I thought I'd, I'd have a crack and, you know, fortunately it went in. Did you see the uh, reaction on social media, because on Twitter and Facebook, people were going nuts for it. Were you sort of aware of how great a goal it was? Mm, no, I'll be honest, no. Uh, all, the, all the lads want to come in 
said I've never seen the goal yet, it's, it's unbelievable. But I didn't actually see it till uh, a little bit after. Yeah, to see it back, there's some, some great angles of it. Some yeah. people on Twitter saying uh, it reminds me of Roberto Carlos. What do you think did of that? that? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a strong comparison, but uh, no, he, I think he scored a, a fair few better goals than that. You look nothing like him either. I, no, I do look nothing like him as well, that, and I'm not Brazilian. Yeah. Growing up, who did you support? Uh, I actually supported Newcastle. Uh, it's a bit strange, obviously, being from London, but uh, when I first started to watch football, they had, for me, like, a great attacking team like, with Les Ferdinand, Espria, Shearer, and, and that actually got me wanting to play football. Since we've been in League One, there's been you see so many people, the same people going from ground to ground, and to see them rise with us as well, coming through the leagues, has, has been special. So um, it's your birthday today. Happy yes, birthday! Thank you but very much. Also, you signed a new contract with the club. Yeah. You must be delighted. With that. Um, so yeah, I'm very delighted. You know, it's 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 been very pleasing that they they have decided to to offer me yeah. a new contract, and I. Uh, you know, I couldn't wait to sign. God, those were great days where you could actually shake hands with people. It, oh, it was brilliant. Isn't it weird when you watch the TV now and you're seeing people socialise in the Queen Vic or whatever, not I watch EastEnders, it's, it just looks weird. It just looks really weird. Um, I can't wait for it all to be over and for the football to start again. But... On YouTube, we've been doing our best to keep you entertained. Now, if you haven't subscribed, please do so. Just go to youtube.com forward slash AFCB podcast because we're doing a live show every Thursday. It's streamed live via YouTube and Facebook straight after the clap for carers, just after 8 p.m. talking all things AFCB with a panel of uh, three or four people. Last time it was Neil Dawson joining myself and Jeff Hayward. Plus we had Peter Rutzler in from The Athletic and this week it's going to be myself and Jeff and we're going to be joined by Alex Deutsch but also BBC Radio Solent commentator and well general media mogul Chris Temple. So that's on Thursday night after the clap for carers but you can join the stream just beforehand. Now, coming up on this podcast. We replay parts of the last live show because there are some interesting debates, not least... There was a bit of a rant from Neil Dawson on VAR, which got a lot of praise on Twitter. Lots of people are against it, and he is certainly one of them. Later on in the show, we chat to Neil Meldrum. You can watch the full interview online on YouTube. But he, of course, penned the book, The Fall and Rise of AFC Bournemouth, which charted our progress in the last sort of 20 years or so, and culminating in promotion to the Premier League. It was really great to hear some behind-the-scenes stories from him. Plus, myself and Jeff managed to catch a word, well, a very long word. It was a 50-minute chat with former AFC Bournemouth midfielder Matt Holland. Again, full interview can be seen on YouTube, but it was really great to go over from stories from the past, including the Great Escape, the Winter Gardens, when he was made captain, but also the time that Fletch always would get the beers in on the team coach. What a lad. So that's all coming up. Hi, this is The Biggin, Steve Fletcher, 
and you're listening to Back of the Net. But first, let's wind back to last Thursday, where we had our live chat. And as mentioned, it was Peter Rutzler, Jeff Hayward, myself, Sam Davis and Neil Dawson. Peter, we spoke on a um, on a on a separate video on YouTube before, didn't we, about what on earth it must be like for a sports journalist in this um, in this current climate that we, you know, I was on Talk Sport and um, I mentioned this on one of my previous videos, and I thought I was going to be on there for a serious chat, but we ended up basically playing Connect Four um, <laughs> with Max Rushton and uh, Barry Glendening, and I thought, well, this is what it's come down to. And I don't know if you saw one of their memes they put on; they were ranking uh, biscuits for tea dunking earlier. So, what's it like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not as challenging as that. I mean, the guys at Talk Sport are doing a fantastic job in in, in the circumstances, but. Yeah, it's different. Uh, you don't have the hook of a match every week. Um, I'm lucky in a sense that we're not as reliant on those everyday news lines as, as everyone else is, um, which is good for, for football reporting. But, you know, it presents its new challenges, just trying to find different ways of telling telling story, new stories, old stories. So, um, yeah, it's going OK so far. We'll see how it goes as, as it carries on. But, yeah, no, no tea dunking stories as yet for our subscribers. <laughs> and uh jeff how you been coping with the lack of football it's um it's not easy is it it's not easy at all i'm, I'm not liking it um I, I, the conversations i'm having are all about uh what's still going to happen with the premier league season and i think uh i think that's really interesting what what will actually happen i can i can see it being a, a 47 game season starting in august at the moment currently it's it's very interesting because obviously at the start when this whole outbreak happened, we were all sort of wondering what on earth's going on. But now we've seen the severity of the whole, you know, COVID-19 outbreak. It's, you know, football's taken a back seat and we haven't really been thinking about it. But at some point it's going to be plateauing and we're going to be starting to wonder what's going to happen. And there have been numerous theories that have been going about like voiding of the season and uh, trying to delay it like the Premier League have gone playing it behind closed doors Peter what's your thought on what might happen yeah it's a lot of speculation and a lot of what could be what might not be and I think one thing we can be relatively confident about for now is they're not keen on voiding the season just because of the financial implications of it especially from a broadcasting perspective, the amount of money the clubs could lose, what the broadcasters could potentially want in return for not showing matches. Um, but then it all gets very complicated around June 30th and when contracts expire, obviously Bournemouth got several players whose contracts are up in the summer and they're currently in a bit of limbo as well. So FIFA have just come out and said that you know they'll propose that they can extend it. That doesn't actually mean that those contracts will be extended indefinitely. Um, employment law supersedes that so yeah it's it's uncertain I think for me I think finishing the season is important I think they've got to try and maintain the integrity of the competition as much as possible I know some people have said behind closed doors loses that but I think when you consider some of the options whether it be points per game ending the season that doesn't I think they those lose more integrity um, than necessarily behind closed doors which we don't want um, and there are so many other things to consider with that, of course. You know, you're going to have an ambulance there at a game. You're going to have, it's not just one or two people in the coaching staff. You know, there's, you need a hundred odd people to, to run a game. So it's, yeah, it's, it's complicated. And, but we'll, we'll see, I guess. You know, we've played a number of teams, um, you know, home and away already, but there are some matches that we, 
have got left that are you know winnable games but then you know it's it's more of a leveling factor when you've got sort of no i mean i know we've only got eleven thousand or whatever but well totally i think the uh the the, the dean court the vitality crowd is um an extra man for us and has been in those critical games the must-win games that we had recently brighton villa i mean it was a factor in the chelsea game i don't think we'd have made that comeback unless the crowd had really got behind the players or indeed held out for that 2-2 which was a, a really valuable point against a much better team on the day so um i think it will affect our performances um which won't be good and i i'm reluctant that they do play it uh, play games behind closed doors and to be honest I think the whole timing thing Peter mentioned the contracts but what have the players been doing you cannot be training at the moment so it's effectively they're going to have to go through a almost like a pre-season to get ready again to play and you can only start training when the lockdown's been lifted when social distancing has been um, alleviated so that is going to be some time away and if they don't if they don't um loosen up the lockdown and that social distancing policy until say june or even worse july then you may as well run it as a as a start of next season starts with nine games to finish this season yeah we're talking yeah. really fine margins there like you know just as jeff was saying i mean i think the efl introduced a directive today saying uh that they teams would need about three four weeks to to sort of get match fit um, which is a significant amount of time if you're trying to get the season done in the summer or trying to avoid any damage to the following season. So it does leave the question, or could we potentially merge the seasons together? I, don't, I think Leeds and West Brom might have a few things to say about that. Mm. But, you know, the, it, the, that's it's, we're, we're dealing with unknowns and it's just that tight amount of time that they want to get it in. I think the EFL said it take about 56 days to complete their season, including the mm. playoffs, which is, you know, it's... It's a lot of time in considering where we are now in April. <laughs> yeah, and like you say, there's been a lot of um, financial implications, uh, not least the following of staff, um, players all coming together with this Players Together campaign, which was sort of announced last night at nine o'clock. And um, Neil, some AFC Bournemouth fans contacting players directly via Twitter and tagging them in and asking what they should well basically saying what they should and shouldn't be doing what what's your opinion on that i think uh it always annoys me when people decide they're going to tell other people how to spend their money um because you know we live from people having zero money to having multi-billions and everything in between uh and i just think uh, who's got any right to tell philip billing how he spends his cash um I'm sure he does a lot of stuff uh, like a lot of players do in terms of having foundations or training schools, etc. And I think the whole pandemic's kind of bred this thing where we all can tell people um, they can't do this, they can't do that, and we can all report on people. I think it's very, very strange. Um, I think uh, it, a lot of the calls for players to give up money, all that would have done would have saved a lot of Chinese, Arab and um, Russian billionaires from having to pay those players. And we're an awful lot better off if those players pay their wages and it goes into the tax system. If they choose to do uh, something themselves, which I think they now have, that's great. But why the, why there was this massive campaign to stop Russian billionaires from paying players money, I, I, I do not know because the NHS didn't benefit from that. They lost from it. 
as Tommy Heffernan's poodle says, um, on a positive note, it's been more than a month since we moaned about VAR. And uh, <laughs> what, what have been your what have been your thoughts on it this uh, this season? It's um, you know, the technology's there, but is it the um, the implementation on it rather than um, well, the people using it? Because I mean, that one at Burnley specifically that I'll always look back at and think, how on earth, when you've got decisions? I mean, Peter, you've seen probably more football than most. You know, being a journalist, you're watching football all the time, um, you know, analysing stuff. What was your take on it? The funny thing with with VAR, and, you know, we talk about it and see the Burnley game and the handballs and, and the shoulders, is that because the rules have changed, you know, if the season extends, there's a possibility that the new interpretation will be then, in, in, you know, introduced, which... I think it's down to each league if they want to introduce it or not, which would just be a massive kick in the teeth, wouldn't it, if they just mm. decide to change it then? Um, yeah, I feel like with VAR, we've, we've, we've got this very strange version of it. And I've tried to stay away from all debate on it this season until it got to the point where it was just ridiculous and you just had to call it out for what it is. And it's 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 great when it works for you and it's terrible when it's against you. Um I do feel the main concern I have, and it's what Eddie said when he came out after the Burnley game, um, it wasn't Mike Dean who made those calls that were wrong. It was the video assistant referee 300 miles away. Yeah. Now, Mike Dean's there. He can see the conditions of the game. The Adam Smith handball, the ball's swirling. It's raining. It's awful. You can clearly see it's not deliberate handball. He's gone to control it with his chest. Mike Dean's seen that. 10, 15 yards away, decides it's not. Now, we don't know. We don't know if, if Mike Dean's turned around and then gone to... I think it was Chris Kavanagh, I'm not sure, but whoever was at Stockton yeah, Park um, and just and just goes, actually, do you know what? I'm not sure. I didn't really see it. If you you might have a better view on the screen, it's a different story. Um, with those kind of calls, you need to use the side monitor. And I think I think the actual act of seeing a referee go across and using that monitor would make a big difference, not just to the supporters, but also the players, because it reinstates that sense of authority rather than this helplessness that we seem to have where we're waiting on something so far away there's so many other problems with it you know the fact that fans can't see it even we in the press box sometimes we're just like well what's that been given what's going on here we're waiting and then there's a delay and we still don't know and then you guys don't know and it's it's just it's 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 not been great um but i think it's here to stay and i think that's kind of my mindset with it where you know we can talk about getting rid of it and whatever but as a practicality it's not probably going to happen yeah Paul said but yeah Paul Cameron said exactly the same thing. Use use the bloody pit side monitor, and you know that's what it's there for. And um, Neil, speak up against VAR. Pull your boots. I will. Go on, I will all day all day long. I'll speak up against it for one reason. Yes, you can make it better, and you can. Uh, there's a lot of things that could be improved technically in it, including the use of the pit side monitor. But I think we forget the reason why people go to football. Uh, football is like a drug for a lot of people, um, and the, the like all drugs, it, re, it it involves a release. And the release is when you've had a really crap week at work, or your wife's left you, or whatever. When you go to a game and you score an 89th minute winner, like we did at Newcastle uh, with Steve Cook's header, there's no feeling in the world like that. That's what keeps people going back to football. So no matter what you do from a technological aspect, if you take away that moment of elation, because the first thing we all do or all did up until this season was watch the referee to make sure he was wheeling away back to the centre line. And that feeling of elation, you can't replace that. And I think it's a danger for football if it, if it moves away from rem remembering what it is that why people go. 
uh, in the interest of getting things technically correct. So I think it's a it's a disaster. I hate it um, for those for those reasons. And yes, it yes it can be made better. But whatever you however you make it better, you will still have not have taken away that moment where everyone has to now wait inside to see whether or not you can celebrate a goal. And that's that to me is a, a, an absolute travesty. So, yeah, if you want to watch the full chat, you can go to YouTube or check out our Facebook page because you can view the whole thing over there. Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell. I was a 2015 BDO World Champion and you're listening to the podcast Back of the Net. So, as mentioned, we're also playing a bit of audio out from the chat we had with the former Echo editor and author of the Fallen Rise of AFC Bournemouth book, Neil Meldrum. We spoke about his time covering the club, the media ban faced by the Daily Echo, and also the cynicism after the Sport 6 takeover. And I loved his description of Sport 6, where he said they they had a slickness about them, but it was very much an oily slickness. It's quite interesting as um, an Echo journalist, because I was chatting to Chris Temple recently and a few others. How much have you ever felt as a journalist that you've needed to sort of pussyfoot around the club in order to not get banned? Because I remember, you know, back in some dark days, I'm not sure if they were before your time or not, there was a ban temporarily for the Echo where they couldn't attend any of the press conferences, for example. So when, for instance, there are these mystery takeovers with uh, consortiums called Sport 6 that you don't know anything about, um, how cynical can you be? Uh, well, we're naturally cynical anyway, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you know, I think that, that does come naturally. Um, I think going back, I mean, going back to the, to the band thing, the band thing actually, it was, it was very much in the middle of my time. Um, I, was, I was sports editor at the time um, when, the, when the kind of very public band came in. I think um, there had been kind of previous scrapes with the club before my time as well, but but nothing quite uh, uh, with what we faced um, when we were banned from covering games. Um, so we missed, I think we missed the best part of two months of that season, um, not covering games. We didn't actually mention the club at all in the paper. Yeah, I mean, we actually turned the tables a little bit on the club, um, or we tried to. That was sort of very much our, our stance was, you know, uh, this is how much you've earned from, from free editorial um, during very, very difficult times. Uh, and this is what it would have cost you in advertising revenue. So if you want to feature in the paper, put your hand in your pocket. That was kind of the um, the stance that we took. And, you know, I think it did rock them a little bit, actually. Um, but we didn't we didn't get back in, actually, until um, until later that later that later that season, I think. I'm trying to remember when it was. It must have been um, right at the end of that. I think it was the last last two or three games of that season. And, um, and by that point, Paul Groves and Sean Brooks were in charge. Uh, Lee Bradbury had gone. Um, so yeah, in, they were they were interesting times. Um, Sports six, um, kind of going back to your your mention of them. I think I think if we're being honest, and I think if you asked Mr. Parrott um, the same question, I think we both we both called Sports six pretty early on, actually, um, as as a as blaggers, essentially, for want of a better word. Um, <laughs> it was just you could just tell from. From the sound bites, and you know they were very, very, and you'll you'll kind of get you'll get this side. Jeff being a PR man, it was very, very slick. Yeah, it was, it was almost it was almost oily slick, and I, I think we just felt that straight away that, that you know something wasn't right here, and and so it was proved in the end. 
Yeah, they. I think you, the way you you uh, presented that whole section of the book was was fascinating. Really, I mean, we were we were as fans. You well, you get a different perspective, don't you? As fans, you know, you see these sort of companies come in and think, oh, they could be the white knights, they could save us, and then suddenly um, you realise that actually they're not delivering on what they promised, and uh, and it a pattern starts developing, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I I should point out, I don't think we were we're not. I'm not saying that that we were kind of geniuses for, for working them out early on. I think most of the most of the supporters um, felt the same very, very early on in that uh, that phase of the club's history. Um, and obviously our job was to kind of reflect the views of the supporters um, who frankly had been through enough uh, and, and ask the right questions, which I think we did by and large. I think we, you know, we always, we would always get criticism for perhaps not delving as, as deep as we could have into what was going on at that time. Um, but you know, I, I think that that's part of the course. Unfortunately, when you when you're a reporter or or a journalist, I thought one of the other things from that time was uh, when Eddie is given the job at minus uh, minus seventeen and uh, brings in the lone players. You 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 forget where some of those players came from, and and you're you're really good at actually picking out people like Liam Feeney, for instance. You know, and and, uh, and how 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 sort of unknown and unheralded they were, and yet from from a squad of of lone players to bring together what he did was was well the guy's a genius I think yeah it says a lot about Eddie and I think actually he's he's, he's obviously he's gone on to um to do that with with the players that he had kind of from the league one championship to premier league days really I mean he's turned um championship players at best at first glance into um established premier league performers so he's, it's, I think that's his biggest strength is um, is working with what he's got and making it better. And you know the guys that you mentioned from those days, the likes, likes of Mark Molesley, Anton Robinson, Liam Feeney, fantastic players. Um, you know he brought in players who who had that real kind of hunger and desire uh, coming from where they did. And clearly, you know you can have all the hunger and desire in the world if you, if, if if you if you can't reach the level, then you know that that all goes to waste. So clearly, he 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 knew that these guys were going to be able to perform as well. But I think he, his his whole uh, theory for how they were going to get out of that situation that they found themselves in was was bringing in people who he knew were going to work together and um, and really have that hunger to achieve something. Once again, if you want to view the full chat with Neil and Jeff Hayward, that can be seen on our YouTube channel. Do check it out. Hi, I'm Kelly Summers and you're listening to Back of the Net. Finally this week, we managed to have a chat with former AFC Bournemouth midfielder Matt Holland about his time at the Cherries. We discussed the moment he signed for the club, the great escape season and also that night at the Winter Garden, followed by, of course, his subsequent permanent spell at the club, including the responsibility of being a young captain and also the teammates that could have made it but never quite made it. Was it quite a culture shock for you, uh, sort of moving straight into first team football? And not only that, it was a team that were in a dire position that needed points week in, week out. To, to be honest, I think the culture shock came really from from the facilities and looking around the place. You know, not 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 so much the you know the, the fact that we're in a relegation battle or anything like that. Um, but when you turn up at, at you know the club and it, you know it's in a bit of a state, really, if we're being honest, you know, it needed a lick of paint it needed this the pitch wasn't great didn't have money really to spend on anything you know when you're traveling away from home it, most of the time we, we did travel on a friday but when we traveled up on a friday we, we had to try and find a bit of grass to try and train um 
sometimes Willow even jokes now. He said, you know, he, he sort of gave the, the hotel the check, uh, got on the bus as quickly as he could and let the bus go just in case, the, just in case the check didn't bounce because there was, there was so, you know, there was so little money at the club um, on the bus home. You know, we, we'd get two pound at the garage to go and spend and get a sandwich and a drink maybe. And that was, that was pretty much how it was. Whereas at West Ham, you know, you're on the back of the bus, you're getting fed, you've got a microwave, someone's cooking you a meal. Well, I actually, I was a youngster growing up at West Ham and it travelled with them a lot, the first team. So I was the one who was making them the meals and making them a cup of tea on the back of the bus. But they, you got you got well looked after and the training facilities were great. The stadium was great. You know, coming to Bournemouth, it was a bit, wow, washing your own kit for training, um, yeah, finding a scrap of land to play, to, to practice and train. That was, the, that was the big culture shock, I think. That was the big difference. So what do you actually remember of your home debut? Because I think you played as a sub, didn't you, against Huddersfield in a game at the end of January, which I do recall we didn't come out victorious in that one either. We didn't. I don't know if that's a leading question or not, but only because the thing I remember most about it is ripping my shorts within about 30 seconds of coming on. So I came on, made a tackle, and then my, short, my shorts split down the side. So I had to come to the, to the dugout like whip, literally whip them off in front of everyone, put a new pair of sh- put a new pair of shorts on and back onto the pitch. That's what I remember most about the um, the debut. So yeah, that, that I mean, I know I think it was against Huddersfield and we got we did get beat two uh, 0 I think on the day. Um, but but the thing that sticks out most was me ripping my shorts and having to change and getting a few wolf whistles from the crowd. It's, um, it's funny that you know Jeff was speaking about players previously that. Um, you know, you obviously had the consistency, you were fairly injury free and it was uh, that, that you, your consistency that led you to have the path you had, whereas some technical, you know, some players that were very technically gifted perhaps dropped off. Um, were there any players in that first stint, maybe the great escape season or maybe when you were a permanent signing that you felt circumstances maybe led to a situation whereby, you know, they couldn't progress, whereas perhaps they should have? I, do you know what? I was, the, the standard actually was was of a of a high one, really. The players that that Mel brought into the um, into the football club, uh, you know, that had been at, uh, a lot of them had been at Premier League clubs and hadn't quite made the grade and get into the first team. But technically, were a lot of there was a lot of very good players. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I arrived, I thought Scott Mean was someone that, that you know. Well, he eventually did get he eventually did get a move. Injuries probably played a big part in him, you know, perhaps not kicking on in in his career. Um, I mean, Jonesy, Steve Jones was was someone that, you know, did play at a good level as well. Um, but the, I think that the team was, Russell Beardsmore had played at a top level with Anne United. So there was a number of players in that squad at that time who, who um, I don't know, I thought were all all technically good. And, and with a bit of luck, you just don't know, do you? I mean, Neil Young, I thought, was another one at right back who, who you know, I played with his brother Luke at Charlton in the Premier League. And I think Neil, you know, could have done that as well. It's funny because um, Steve, we spoke to Steve Jones in a previous podcast and he said that um, he played with some frustrating players, one of whom was Jason Brissett. And he said that on his day, he was absolutely incredible and could take anyone on. But he he just um, you know finished his statement by saying, unfortunately, he just didn't have many days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember Steve Robinson was a, a really technically gifted player. And I, it was interesting what you said about being too small at the youth stage, Matt, because... Um, I think a lot of Bournemouth players in, of that era 
they always we always felt that we were a good footballing team and we picked probably smaller players on our team than a lot of the sides that we were playing against you know who are much more physical did it did it feel that that way when you were playing I don't know. We had Big Fletch. He was. Oh, uh, <laughs> he's not. He's not a small man. Uh, <laughs> no, you're. You're right. I mean, there were, there were a lot of, I guess, smaller players. Um, yeah, John Bailey was someone, but he had a big heart. Robbo had a big heart as well. You know, they, they, you look at what Robbo's done now. He's gone into management as well. He was always someone that I thought that might have that that in him really to go on and coach at least. You know, maybe not management, but. Certainly coaching, I thought he would go down that route as well. Um, so we did have, you know, we, we did have a lot of um, smaller players, if you like, but we did, you know, we did have a couple of big ones as well. Hmm. What did you think? Obviously, that great escape season, um, everyone came together and we started to get some tremendous wins. And it culminated in uh, that match against Shrewsbury at home at Dean Court, uh, where we won 3-0. And you could see, uh, I think it was like 10,500 people crammed in there when our average attendance would usually be maybe three or 4,000. What sort of potential did you think the club had based on all these people who came together? Well, yeah, I mean that, that was a glimpse into what the, the you know the, the club could achieve. Really, when you think how isolated we are, really compared to other clubs, you know how far it is from say Southampton or, or Portsmouth or Yeovil the other way. You know, it's, it's quite a big catchment area, really. Um, maybe it's not necessarily a, a massive football town, massive fo- football supporting town, um, but there's certainly the potential there for big crowds. You know, we've seen now in the Premier League fill out and you, you can't get a ticket for love nor money so uh, the potential was always there we saw it actually you know we'll probably talk about it a little bit later but um, the financial problems when we had the, the sort of the meeting at the winter gardens and the amount of people that turned up and and I think the first home game after that might have been Blackpool I think and we had we had over 8,000 um, there as well so the potential was there to for the club to to go places um, but you know obviously um at, at that time, we weren't sort of weren't challenging to get promoted at, at that stage. And I think when you're winning games, that obviously pulls in more punters and more supporters as well. For me, that Shrewsbury game was the obviously the one that you had to win. But it was the one before that, the Brentford game, that um, Brentford were chasing for promotion at the time. We had to go there and get a get a win. And to do that was some achievement. So do, do you remember that game at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember the game. I mean, we obviously won the game 2-1, didn't we, at Brent, uh, Brentford? I, I mean, if you ask me every single minute of every single game I've played in, it's it's almost impossible. But um, I remember those two games, you know, because they were so important to the club in, in terms of trying to stay in the division. So um, I think we, we probably had a decent party after both of them. A few beers a few beers on the bus. Fletch used to be in charge of that on the, the beers on the bus on the way home from games. He used to sort of, we'd all be sat on the bus and the last person on would be Fletch with a big crate of beers and, and uh, we'd, we'd have a few beers at the back when we'd won. Ever the professionally. Oh, of course. Yeah, he, he, nothing's changed with him, has it? <laughs> so, absolutely love it. So, obviously, we had um, a message submitted, a tweet. Um, consistency, leader, um, and energetic are just some of the buzzwords that Cherries fans have used when talking about your time at the club. Um, th- therefore, it wasn't long before Mel Machen gave you the captaincy. Um, so, Neil Dawson tweeted in, and he said, you were uh, the club captain at a very young age. So, was that quite a difficult thing to negotiate with senior pro, uh, senior pros? I mean, did you have to overcome any resistance? And how did you feel once you were asked? 
Well, I don't remember any any real um, problem with it at all, even with senior players. I mean, I, I, I was someone that had, uh, I enjoyed the responsibility of being a captain. I've uh, been captain at uh, all the teams I've played for at a junior age. Uh, I've been captain for um, West Ham's youth team. I've been captain for West Ham's reserves. So it's something that I was sort of quite enjoyed being having the responsibility and having the armband. So that wasn't a problem. I don't remember any of the senior players being an, an issue with that either. In fairness, it was a very young team. So we, we were a really young squad that Mel had pulled together. Um, Mel was brilliant with me in terms of... I, mean, I always felt I was a, was a captain, um, but Mel taught me an awful lot about being a captain as well. Uh, and we had meetings on a regular basis, most mornings I'd be in his office, cup of tea, chatting football, um, chatting about how the lads were feeling, uh, you know, even to the extent of how, you know, do we need to do a bit, bit more in training, a bit less in training, what do you think we need to work on? All those things he was sort of, I don't know whether he was trying to entice it out of me, maybe make me more, you know, um, responsible in that that area of, of, um, of things. But he, he certainly helped me an awful lot. And I think, turned me into even more of a, a leader, if that makes sense. Mel Machin always struck me as a, as quite a considered manager. I couldn't imagine him uh, losing the plot or throwing throwing stuff at you in the changing rooms. How, well, how had, do you describe him? He did have that in him. Mel definitely had that in him. He was uh, he was a tough character, Mel. A brilliant guy. I mean, I, I thought he was a terrific guy and, and someone I've got a lot of respect for and, and looked up to heavily at that particular time in his history in the game, says all you need to know. Um, and I, and I, I learned an awful lot off him, but he, he, you know, he was tough character as well. Um, you know, if he needed to say something, he, he said it. And um, I think I don't I don't remember being on the end of too many verbal lashings from him, but there were a few that, that got a verbal lashing. One of my funniest, one of the funniest stories of, of um, Mel is we were playing a game at, at Dean Court. I can't remember who it was against. Yeah, I, I'd be guessing. Um, but he came into the dressing room and named the team, went out the dressing room and we sort of looked around the dressing room. And said, uh, 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 he's named 12 players. What's that? Mean? So <laughs> it, we, we, we can't, we, we can't be playing. With 12. So obviously someone had gone out and told him about 15 seconds later, he walks back in and says, Robbo, you're not playing. You're on the bench and walk back out again. And that was, that was Mel. I mean, he was, you know, he was a fantastic guy. So when it, um, you know, winding back a little bit. So after Shrewsbury, we had this, um, entered as uh, sent in via Twitter as well. How did you celebrate after the Great Escape victory? Did Mel sort of allow you to go out and enjoy yourself? I can't remember. Must have been good. Must have been good. Uh, I, I honestly, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> I think I, I think I ended up sleep, sleeping on Steve Fletcher's floor, but I don't, I don't remember much about it. No, it was, um, it was a good night. So speaking of um, Fletch then, obviously um, Eddie Howe would have been around at that time, a young, uh, you know, central defender. Were there any, you know, could you see anything in him at that point that would lead him to be where he was today? Because he um, he was praised by many in terms of his, um, he was a cool and very composed footballer. Um, but, you know, did you think he could do what he's done? He's been brilliant, hasn't he? Absolutely brilliant. I've, I've actually had the pleasure of interviewing him a couple of times as well for for the Premier League channel, and he, he's he speaks so much sense, speaks so clearly. Um, and I can listen to him all day. I, th- I think at the time he was, as you quite rightly say, cool and composed on the pitch. Same off it. I think he was a thinker. 
you know, even at that stage, I think he was someone that thought about the game a lot and how he could improve and uh, how he could get better and and um, and perhaps how the team was playing. You could see that, and you could again see certainly a bit like Robbo, really someone who would definitely go on and coach because he he had that within him. Whether I I thought he had that. Um, the toughness, the steeliness, if you like, to be... He had a steeliness. He had... Because he had... I'd almost describe him a little bit like myself, really. That inner desire, that hunger to be to be some, you know, to do the best he can possibly be. Whether he had that real nastiness, if you like, that you need, I think, to be a top-class manager, I wasn't necessarily sure. But clearly, I think football's changed as well. I don't think you necessarily have to be a teacup thrower like they were in the past I think it has changed I think there's there's a, a lot more the, the mental side of it the man management side of it I think is is much more thorough and, it, and Eddie's someone that that clearly gets the best out of his players I think he generally puts an arm around them rather than a kick up the backside um but he's he's done brilliantly and I'm, I'm so pleased that, to see as I said earlier about where the club was at when I arrived and the, the, the ground needing totally changing no training ground um two pound on a bus on the way and washing your own kit to see where it is now in the Premier League an established Premier League side. It, it just gives me great pleasure. So you were captain at a, a time of great uh, turmoil. How aware were you of the, the financial struggles, the boardroom struggles that were going on? Well, we're aware because when our wage packet or, or was due at the end of a month, it didn't always come. So we, we, um, we, we knew on a regular basis, actually, most months our, our pay was late. It was whether it was a week, two weeks. I think the longest it was was about four or five weeks that that we hadn't been paid. You know, then and when you're a captain as well of the team, you know you you get a lot of people in your ear, sort of saying, "What's happening? When are we going to get paid? Go and ask, go and speak to the manager. Go and speak." To, you know, so there was a lot of that going on at the time. So we were certainly aware of the the struggles that the club was was having um, because on a regular basis, come the end of the month, we, we didn't have any money in our bank. We hadn't been paid. Mm, that's right. I mean, we needed to raise, I think, 300000 to avoid a winding up order and we owed Lloyd's Bank. Our total debts were nearing $5 million. Um, the chairman at the time, King Gardner, had resigned and it all culminated in this Winter Gardens meeting in front of, I don't know, it's short of about 2,000 fans in the end. I mean, what what was it like sitting on that stage? Because you were up there, sat alongside Trevor Watkins. I, I, I mean, it was totally alien to me. I mean, I, um, being captain as well, being asked to speak in, in front of the supporters and, and that many people was was quite intimidating at, at that particular time. I, you know, I wouldn't deny that. Um, it was, yeah, pretty surreal. I mean, I think it started the week before we we um, the administrators came in on the Friday and were sort of asking the players really if they wanted to play. I think it was Bristol City the next day, mm. and 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 said, you know, it's up to you if you want to play. If you don't, the club will fold and that'll be it. You'll all be able to be free to leave. And actually, that would have suited some of us. You know, we, we might have got to move a little bit higher up, and and um, you know that that would have been great. It wouldn't have suited others, but to be honest. Every single one of the lads, when we had that meeting, just went, yeah, we'll play. No problem at all. We'll play. And we, we played um, Bristol City the next day. We were, again, we're going well. And I think we beat them 1-0. Yeah. Uh, and then this Winter Garden stuff, I think it all happened in that midweek after after the Bristol City game. Um, and we weren't sure what, what was going to happen on the Saturday and whether we we're going to play or not. But I think I think they said, the administration said that night at the Winter Gardens that we'll definitely play the game on the Saturday. 
um, which we did. We beat, uh, uh, did we beat uh, it might have been the draw against Blackpool um, at home. And there was about 8,000 uh, at the ground at, at the game as well on, on Saturday. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff was there. Um, I was there. <laughs> I was there. I was there. <laughs> uh, but I perhaps paid my tenner for the ticket. Um it was it was a surreal moment. It was you know because I've I've gone from a club that's been playing at in the well, in the Premier League or whatever it was at, at West Ham at the time, uh, the Premiership, and um, the, the facilities and everything that goes with it, and then to come into a club that didn't have anything really, um, it was a, a real shock to the system, and um, I, we were we were just unsure whether the club would even survive or not. So fortunate enough. Trevor Watkins got involved. The consortium got involved. We 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 got through to the end of the season, and um, and then I was sold, and and obviously, uh, you know, the rest is history, I suppose. Oh yeah, so it was brilliant to chat to Matt and of course now Matt can be seen and heard working for the Premier League and providing analysis on Talk Sport as well as many other outlets. So yeah, great to chat to Matt Holland too. So it was really great to have you along for this podcast. I appreciate if you've seen the YouTube stuff and what's on Facebook. You've probably heard most of this before. However, there are some that don't subscribe and also do just appreciate that little audio burst. We're not going to be bringing the audio podcasts to you too regularly because there's only so many things you can say about what is going on but hopefully the football will return soon but number one priority stay safe stay isolated wash your hands do your social social distancing easy for me to say and yeah do check us out on youtube because there's going to be lots of content coming ahead all right then guys um thursday night eight o'clock we'll see you there on youtube until then this has been episode 83 of back of the net the afc bournemouth podcast Maybe on Walker. Pew. Pew! That'll do it! That will do it! Pew for Bournemouth! The roof of the gold sands is raised! Everyone here knows what that could mean to this football club. Podcast Network.